Hey everyone, thank you for joining me. Uh, as promised in my previous podcast, I'm putting out another one this week. Hopefully, one more by the end of the week. By uh, by the end of the weekend, coming at you live from Grand Forks, North Dakota, where it is a balmy negative 18 degrees Fahrenheit right now, negative 29 degree wind chill. Uh, so, enjoying the tropical paradise out here, and uh, pretty pretty happy to be inside a warm room pretty thankful for modern conveniences right now being here uh but i've got several stories to talk about today one big thing that came out this is what i'll talk about first and probably for the majority of this episode because it's kind of close to home but it's also big in terms of what it could mean for the rest of the country and that is andrew cuomo the governor of new york state his proposal for free tuition at new york state colleges for eligible students and in his in his plan all students from families that make $125,000 a year or less would be eligible for free tuition at New York State colleges and obviously I talk about higher education quite a bit considering my age a lot of my friends are either still in school or have just left school a lot of people are still feeling the effects positive or negative of their experiences in school Virtually all of them are still paying for school. Uh, So everybody's impacted by this in some way. And now Andrew Cuomo, who in his current term as governor, is definitely pushed further to the left, kind of taking advantage of the Democrat establishment or the, the Democratic Party's shift left. I know they still nominated Hillary Clinton for president over Bernie Sanders, but I think you did see that party, and the party tried to basically supersede the will of the voters within that party by pushing the nomination toward Hillary Clinton and away from Bernie Sanders and actively, basically actively working to make sure that Hillary Clinton was the nominee rather than Bernie Sanders, despite Sanders' very surprising performance during the presidential primaries last year. Uh, So that's a big story I want to talk about. I also want to give an update on the war on cash. This time it's from Greece. And Greece is moving in that direction. It's not quite as explicit as India's war on cash, where they actually outright banned particular bills. But I think what Greece is doing could be palatable for politicians in other countries. Because coming out and saying outright we're banning these particular bills, I think still is difficult to do politically. I'm not saying it's going to be difficult to do politically forever. But the way that the Greek government is trying to do this actually could work because I think it's a little it's more complex and it's a little bit harder probably for the average person to understand so it'd be easier to ram through uh, despite it still having similar effects basically forcing people to spend and to bring their money into the banking system uh, in ways that maintaining cash the way it's currently used allows them to do allows people to still operate kind of outside of the outside of the surveillance of government and outside of the traditional banking system, if that's how you so choose to operate, you still largely can in a lot of places due to the availability of cash. You know, it's probably difficult to get away with that entirely. I think you still, for most people, you need to have some sort of bank account, need to have some money going in and out of a a bank account. But you could conceivably get by. You could pay your rent in cash. You could pay the majority of your bills in cash. You can use money orders. Um do all of this outside of 
a traditional bank account outside of using credit cards and debit cards. You can do the majority, the vast majority of your finances in that way if you so choose. But Greece is doing something pretty creative to try to stop people from doing that. And then I also want to briefly talk about Lena Dunham's comments about two weeks ago saying that she she wishes she had an abortion. This is another request from a listener. I know I'm about two weeks late to the party on that. Those comments came out, I believe, during that gap between episodes 31 and 32. But just give my brief opinions, I guess, on abortion and my brief opinions on Lena Dunham and why I seem to disagree with her on just about everything she says. But uh, I want to hit all three of these stories, and I'm going to open up with the Cuomo New York State free tuition proposal. So Cuomo came out, and this was along with Bernie Sanders. He actually was with Bernie Sanders when he unveiled this plan. And under his plan, this is from the New York Times. I'll have the link to this on the website. Uh, Quote, under the governor's plan, college students who have been accepted to a state or city university in New York, including two-year community colleges, would be eligible, provided they or their family earn $125,000 or less a year. Uh, Basically... What he says is that New York State would come in and fill the gap between whatever federal aid is available, you know, whatever other aid is available, New York State will fill the gap. The the taxpayers of New York State, the citizens of, of New York State will cover the gap between whatever aid students can get and the ultimate tuition costs. And they're they're saying that this will cost, I believe one hundred sixty three million dollars is the estimate. Um, and I haven't done the math as to how much that entails per student per year, but I guarantee you it'll be higher than that without even doing any of the math. I can just tell you that whatever the sticker price they're putting on this plan is, it almost inevitably will be higher than that $163 million uh, figure that they're talking about right now. I, mean, I found the quote here. The administration estimated that the state's annual outlay would be $163 million by 2019, though it acknowledged that estimate could be affected by participation and level of need. And obviously, you don't know how students are going to react to this. I mean, you already see what's happened with student loans being so uh, readily available, government-guaranteed student loans being so readily available. Far more students go to school, I think, than otherwise would in a free market, and students don't really exhibit much price sensitivity because they almost see this as free money. They don't really realize what they have to pay back until they ultimately do have to pay it back years later. And obviously when you're 18 years old and somebody's willing to hand you over $100,000 to go to school, that looks like a pretty good deal, especially for somebody that wants to go to school and go and party for four years. Yes, I'll sign up for that. I'll sign up for delaying adulthood. I'll sign up for going to school and to go and party and to make friends with people my own age. And I'm being given this money without really thinking about, well, how how am I possibly going to pay back that $100,000 in four years' time? You know, how am I going to cover a four or $500, $600 bill a month at least, depending on how long you amortize your student loans out for once you get out? You know, how am I possibly going to pay for that? But people don't think about that when they're 17, 18 years old and just graduating from high school. And when somebody says this money's available, they're going to take it in most instances. And they're most likely to take it 
in cases where they don't have parents that have gone to college and have gone through a somewhat similar process in the past. Now, I know that tuitions have skyrocketed even in just one generation between my parents' generation and this current generation that's going to school, but parents that have gone to school at least went through similar processes. They, A lot of them are still paying student loans themselves. They can give hints of warning to their uh to their children you know be careful what you do you will have to pay this money back you cannot discharge this money through bankruptcy um, all those things that we that people realize once they get out if you have parents that have gone through the process a lot of times it makes it easier to uh to be given those warnings in advance and to avoid making disastrous decisions not that plenty of people still don't make disastrous decisions despite the best advice of their parents or their parents may ignore what they've learned and think this time it'll be different. It'll be different for my kid now. The world's a different place now than it was when I went to college. So it's even more important now for uh, my kids to go to school. But the people most likely to be taken advantage of in that system are people who do not have parents or family members that have went to college. So it's somewhat predatory. I, I would call it predatory against people who are the first members of their family to go to college, which is the exact opposite of the system that I think we would all like to have. So Cuomo sees the issues. Bernie Sanders sees the issues. They don't identify what the actual cause is, which has been these government-guaranteed student loans. And what do they want to do? Their fix is more government. Their fix is, well, now we'll just have New York State come in and cover the costs, You know, cover the difference, regardless of what that difference is. Um, we'll come in and we'll cover the difference in that cost so that more people can go to college, like that's what we need, right? Like that's our issue is not enough people can go to college. If anything, it's the it's the reverse and a college degree has been cheapened because basically what collegiate programs are doing, what collegiate administrations are doing is chasing the money that's out there, chasing the federal money that's out there and all these subsidies that are given to students in order to inflate their ability to pay. So of course standards are lowering and of course kids are not learning as much as they have in the past. And basically what colleges see them as is somebody to bilk. And they realize that students are, there's not the same elasticity of demand as there is in other industries because there's this federal money that continues to flow. Now, will it flow forever? I certainly hope not. And I don't think it can. I don't think it's sustainable when you already have about $1.4 trillion in student loans out there. Uh, I can't. I really hope it will not flow forever. And if it does flow forever, eventually that'll become such an enormous burden for the taxpayers that I hope people would just wake up and say, enough is enough. This is a disaster. Uh, but I think we're still a long ways away from that point. And I think what we're going to see next before we eventually reach that point is governments like the New York state government stepping in and saying, you know, we're going to fix these problems. The issue right now is there's not enough government involved. It's this free market where th they see colleges as being a free market, and that's why kids can be taken advantage of, when in fact it's the complete opposite. You know, in, in a free market, you can charge as much as the market will bear, but you're limited by how much your potential customers can pay. And there's a certain equilibrium point between where you get enough customers and you can charge a high enough price. There's a certain equilibrium point, and I highly doubt that equilibrium point would be forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. I just refuse to believe that. Uh, 
there's no way of really knowing, I guess, at where that point would be. And I think I've talked about this in, in prior episodes. I think what would happen absent the federal government being so heavily involved in higher education is you would see different niches opening up and you would see certain colleges or institutes of, of post-secondary education that would cater to poorer students and would, you know, maybe have all their classes set up to where you could work a job during the day and then go to school at night. Um, that would do everything to cut costs to bring it down to a point where anybody could afford it. Uh, kind of like, I guess, our community colleges are today, but I think it would be different. And I think they would be even more niche oriented where they would specialize in a few things. Uh, whereas now community colleges, they don't really specialize in a few things. They're kind of feeders for uh, four-year then you'd have niches gradually working their ways up. And a lot of colleges in existence today would continue to exist in a free market, but I think they would look different. You wouldn't have as many universities that are trying to cater to everybody. Uh, tuition rates maybe at the Ivy League schools, places where it's heavily in demand and people realize the value of that name being on your resume, probably tuition rates would stay at very similar rates. But I think for the majority of universities out there, some would close and others would have to figure out where am I going to find my niche? You know, am I going to target the middle class? Am I going to target the working class? Am I going to target the upper middle class or the the top 1%? Who am I going to target? Just like any other business does, that is what colleges would do. But what we're going to have now in New York State, and New York State is close to home for me because where I grew up, I went to a state school in New York. I went to State University of New York at Geneseo. Uh, I think what's going to happen with this is you're going to see tuition rates creep up for state colleges. I think that inevitably will happen. More people will flock to these universities, uh, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, having more students flock to a university because of quality, because they think they're getting more bang for their buck, or they think it's the best decision for them. But now they're going to flock there because it's free. That's natural. They see it as being free. Of course, their parents and other taxpayers, if they work, their taxes will all be going to fund this, uh, to fund these state institutions, to fund the the difference that's being made up by the New York, uh, the New York state government. But already, right now, tuition at New York state universities is among the lowest in the country. And this is in New York State, a state with fairly high incomes, you know, one of the highest average incomes in the country. I don't know exactly where it ranks, but, uh, you know, it's not expensive. It's not prohibitively expensive to go to one of these state schools. And virtually anybody should be able to afford it. I went to SUNY Geneseo. I graduated there in three years. I came out, I had about $20,000 in student loan debt, which I think is very manageable. You know, I paid it off very rapidly. I did go on to graduate school and racked up probably about another $40,000 or so in student loan debt. I've since paid it all off um, in the last about year and a half since I graduated. I've paid all that off, but the portion that I accumulated during my time at Geneseo was very small. Um, According to this article, current full-time tuition at four-year State University of New York schools for residents is $6,470 dollars which should be affordable for students if if you're working part-time most people I think have parents that have saved something 
um, that can contribute. $6,470 for a year is not prohibitive. Maybe you will have to borrow to cover part of that, um, but I think you can go to these universities. One issue I do have with these universities, and this is probably me getting a little bit too into the weeds, but they force you, if you're not from the town or you're not from close enough to the school, they force you to live in the dorms for at least the first year, if not the first two years. So when I went to Geneseo, I had to live on campus for the first years. And obviously they screw you over. They know that you're a captive customer. They can charge virtually whatever they want. So I'd be paying far more to live on campus. They, they force you to buy a meal plan as well, which is very similar. Obviously they're overcharging you because they know that you're a captive customer. Uh, rather than you being able to choose where can I live the cheapest. Uh, so that's one issue I have with the, with the New York State universities is that they force you to do that and they force you to pay. You know, that 6470 is an understatement because you're going to be paying a premium on your cost of living. Unless you go to unless you happen to live in a town where there is a state school and you can live with your parents or you know, you can get an apartment or something if you grew up in or your parents live your permanent address is, is close enough to that town. Uh and I'm not sure what, it might be 50 miles away or something like that. Uh, but Geneseo, I live too far away to be able to do that. So I had to live on campus. But like I said, probably me getting a little bit too into the weeds. But it is not prohibitively expensive today for students to attend university in New York State. These are good schools. You know, there's kind of a wide variety of schools. There's some that are at the higher end of the academic spectrum, some that specialize in music, some that specialize in producing teachers. So there's a lot of variety there and they're all over the state. So you can kind of go for the type of environment that you're looking for. If you want to be out on Long Island, closer to New York City, there's SUNY Stony Brook out there. If you want to be in a, in a smaller town, a place like Geneseo may be just right for you. And these schools already do pretty well. About 400,000 people attend these New York State schools. Of course, they're not all New York State residents or they're not they didn't all grow up in New York State but I would say a majority of them are just based on my experience at Geneseo majority of the people are from New York State because obviously out-of-state tuition is higher than in-state tuition but that's not the case for everybody there are people that come from out of state for various reasons whether it's to play sports or they want to get further away from home or they love something about that particular school particular program that it offers but you should be able to go to one of these schools and if you have any sort of plan and you say, this is what I want to study. This is kind of what I want to do afterwards. These are the prospects for what I can earn when I graduate. You can do pretty well at these universities. You can come out with manageable student loan debt, even if you have to borrow to pay for virtually the entire thing. Um, you can come out with pretty manageable student loan debt. And I don't think this is a major issue. I think what Cuomo is doing here is pandering just like a lot of the left has done trying to give out what the, what people see as free stuff and they see especially in new york state they see it as oh all these hedge fund billionaires are going to be now paying for uh the students or the the children of people who earn thirty thousand dollars a year to attend college that's how they see it but this is going to be spread out over the entire state it's going to be spread out whether you have kids um regardless of how long you've lived in New York State, if you ever plan to have kids and ever want to send them to these state universities, regardless of all those things, you're going to be paying for it. And I think what I ultimately think, I think that whoever is using a particular service should be the one paying for it. And I've, I've come back to that multiple times on the show. I, I won't rehash it too much, but I think 
you get the best sense of how much people actually value education when they are the ones paying for it themselves. And when you don't have these subsidies, you don't have the cost spread out over an entire populace, I think you get a much better idea of how valuable education actually is. I think people will make tougher decisions. And I think ultimately people will figure out how to pay for education. And when you are the one directly paying for something, I think you have a far greater incentive to actually demand quality. And I've said in the past, I've compared it to buying a TV or buying some big product, buying a car. Like imagine all the research that you do before you go and buy a car. And you're going to look at, here are all my options, all these different price points. This is what I can get for my money. Um, this is how long it's going to last, how much I can expect to pay for maintenance, you know, how much are parts going to cost me when I, when I ultimately have to buy parts. Uh, all these things you're going to take into account. But when it's being paid for by somebody else, do you do the same thing? You know, do you think about the value that you get when you go and, and mail a letter or go to the DMV? the same kind of accountability that you hope for when you go to a business that has various competitors and where you're directly paying the entire cost, where it's not subsidized by other people. I think we always, I know I at least am am this way, and I don't think I'm an anomaly in terms of human psychology. When I'm paying for it, I have certain standards, and I know that I can go to somebody else that can provide me some other product or service that can substitute for that given product or service. And I always know in the back of my mind, those are out there. Now, yes, there are substitutes for colleges. There are thousands of colleges all over the country. But we, especially when you make it free, like in Cuomo's proposed system here, when you make it free, there is not the same accountability there. You you don't feel like you're the one paying for it. You feel like I'm getting something for nothing. So I should be happy to get the quality that I'm getting because it's free. But in reality, nothing is free. No matter how many things you promise, somebody's going to be paying for it. You are going to be paying for it now or later. Even if businesses are paying for it and individuals aren't paying for it at all, it ultimately impacts the business climate because it makes it that much more difficult for businesses to hire people or to invest in new technology uh, or capital in order to improve their productivity and make all of our standards of living better. So regardless of who is paying for it and who they say is going to be paying for it, it still impacts our lives. And we need to get out of this mentality of saying, well, as long as somebody else is paying for it and I'm getting the benefit, I should support that policy. And I think that's how a lot of people operate. And it's gotten us into this mess that we're in, this kind of entitlement mentality. And where you do have, in a lot of instances, I think, the tyranny of the majority, where if 51% of the people support something, now it's the will of the people, even if you're stealing from the other 49% of people to give to those 51% of people something, I think that's what happens. And this kind of mentality is prevailing in New York State. I think one of the reasons why you're chasing off quality graduates, why people are not flocking to New York City anymore, why people are leaving the state, is because of this type of mentality. And Andrew Cuomo is a fantastic representation of that mentality, especially in his last term where he went, he went from being kind of a centrist. I never liked him, but he went from being more of a centrist to now pushing further left and and trying to institute, for example, the $15 fast food minimum wage, uh, which I think is is a disaster as well. But once again, this is pushed as now fast food workers getting something for nothing. Now, yeah, this is what people actually think that their wages are just going to rise to $15 an hour and there are going to be 
effects that businesses aren't going to change the way that they hire labor because its cost has been artificially raised. Uh, it's crazy. But these are the types of things that Andrew Cuomo has been doing that he's going to continue to do. And one of the reasons why, I've talked about this on the podcast as well, I, I think ultimately Western and Central New York, and really you could probably say all of upstate New York, people from New York City say everything that's not New York City is upstate New York. Everything you know north of New York City is is upstate New York. Can't be governed under the same state government as New York City is because it's going to continue to be a push to the left. Uh, and I hope that the state goes in a different direction from Cuomo. I would be surprised if they do because people seem to be eating up these types of policies across the country. But I think it's going to be a disaster. It's going to add even more burden to the taxpayers. The state's already in poor fiscal condition. And all this is going to do is, is exacerbate the situation. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out if it actually gets implemented. Of course, uh, it very well may not be implemented. The state Senate is dominated by Republicans because a majority of the state, geographically, if you look at it, is dominated by Republicans. But because New York City's population is so high... Um, the pop you know the population is more democratic than republican but in a senate where it's it tries to equalize that out the state senate tries to do the same thing that the u.s senate does uh it's dominated by republicans but republicans have gone in this direction as well you know they are not immune from this entitlement craze and that's how donald trump won that's the populist message i think he promised more things to more people than hillary clinton did or promised more things to the right people than Hillary Clinton did, the people that actually swayed the election. That was the predominantly white working class that had voted for Obama in the prior two elections in these swing states. Uh, and they believed Trump over Clinton, that they were going to get more from a Trump presidency um, in terms of transfers or you know, tariffs keeping or you know various protectionist policies keeping companies in the United States. They thought they were going to get more from government than they were going to get from a Hillary under a Trump administration than they were going to get under a Hillary Clinton administration. So that's what the Republican Party has been doing too. Uh, they're moving that direction of promising more stuff. So I'm certainly not, I'm not enthusiastic that this is going to get stopped. I am glad that I'm gone. I'm out of New York State uh, and I don't have to deal with the consequences of these types of policies. But my whole family is there. It's a place I love. It's, it's a place that I very well could move back to eventually. Uh, of course, I don't have any plans of that sort yet, and I'm very happy where I am right now. But I think if New York State continues on this path, I, I can't see any way that young professionals are going to want to stay in New York State. It's going to continue to be a haven for people that want to come, and they think that they're going to get more from the state than they give to the state. And I think that's a recipe for disaster. And you're already seeing an exodus of people moving to other states with more hospitable business climates. I think that's what's ultimately going to continue to happen. Uh, and I don't think, it doesn't look like the state or really the people of the state are waking up to what's happening. The solution is not more of what caused the problem in the first place. The solution is not to continue to expand government. So that was a big thing I wanted to talk about today. Uh, I did also want to talk about the soft ban on cash in Greece. And uh, I'd said this is kind of a creative way to ban cash. That's why it's called the 
being dubbed a soft ban because they're not outright banning particular bills. But this is a continuation of the war on cash in India where they actually did outright ban particular bills. Basically said these are null and void. These can no longer be used. They need to be brought into the banking system. Uh, you need to open up a bank account and bring them in or in order to in order for them to have any value other than being toilet paper. Uh, that's not what Greece is doing. What Greece is doing, so they have certain allowances or tax deductions in their in their tax system, and they are now only going to allow these allowances or deductions at their full level if payments are made with credit or debit cards. And then in all their wisdom, basically what they did is they've said, if people don't spend up to this amount of money in using credit or debit cards on particular items, and these particular items don't include utility bills, phones, heating, rent, loan repayments, anything like that. So this would be all on food and you know other spending you typically do outside of the house. I think of this more like those types of things are all my automatic payments that come out every month, kind of my monthly payments. Uh, basically, what, the, what these apply to are anything you're doing outside the house. So you're, when you go out and buy food, or you go out and you buy a TV, or you go out and buy a vacuum cleaner, whatever, those would all apply to these thresholds. And I love thinking that everybody is so similar that we can just we can just give these these dictates across the board, and it's going to apply to all people. So if you don't spend up to ten percent, if you have an annual income up to ten thousand euros, then you need to pay the you need to pay a twenty two percent tax on the missing difference. So if you don't spend a thousand euros, say you make ten thousand dollars a year, if you don't spend a thousand euros on food, whatever outside the house, um, all those things I mentioned, if you don't spend a thousand euros a year, you're gonna be imposed the Greek government's going to impose a twenty two percent tax on the difference. So say you only spend five hundred euros on those things outside the home in a given month. Maybe you grow a lot of your own food or whatever, you don't spend much on food or anything, you, you would be imposed at the end of the year a 22% tax on that difference of 500 euros, which is wild. So what are people going to do? Even if they don't have the money, they're going to go out and they're going to rack up spending to get to that $1,000 or that 1,000 euro threshold. So they're not imposed at 22% tax. Of course, I want to get value for it. I don't want to just be punished this 22% on 500 euros. Um, then the thresholds go up. So it's 15% for incomes between 10,001 and 30,000 euros and 20% for annual incomes over 30,000 euros. So my understanding of this is that it's not marginal. You know, So if you make over 30,000, I believe it's 20% across the board. So if, say you make 40,000 euros, it would be 8,000 euros you need to spend or you're going to, or this tax is going to be imposed on you. Uh, that's my understanding of it. I don't think it's marginal. I haven't been able to get confirmation 100%. It doesn't ultimately make a, a huge difference. Um, it, the idea is still the same. But um, let's say now, if you don't, if you don't spend 8,000 euros outside the home, and I'm trying to think, you know, for for me and my wife, us making a, a certain amount of money. There's no way we would spend up to these thresholds in a given year because one thing that we are, we're, we're austere and we like to save and we try to find ways to cut corners every every way we can. Yes, we do do all of our spending on 
or not all of our spending, but a lot of our spending on credit and debit cards. But I still don't think we would hit these thresholds. So imagine being punished for not spending enough. So what would, what would we be doing? We'd be going out in December and we'd be spending up to that given threshold. We'd be buying wild. We'd be buying, you know, perishable food for the future. We'd be buying whatever, buying a new Xbox or whatever to get up to that threshold rather than saving it, putting it away and, you know, having it for the future in that way, you know, allowing, allowing us to be able to spend it when we actually want to spend it, which is the whole idea behind saving, you know, you save money and then say you save it in a bank. Once you save it there, then the bank lends that money out to somebody who needs it more urgently now. And the way that they show that they more urgently need it is they're willing to pay a certain interest rate when they borrow that money. And obviously they need it more urgently than you. So basically you're financing whatever improvements that company's making, you know, whether they're borrowing to build a new factory or purchase new equipment or they're borrowing because they, they know that they have future demand coming and they want to be able to hire people now. So we're borrowing in order to finance that new hiring because we know that in the future we're going to be making more money to be able to afford those people. Whatever the reason is, that's the whole reasoning behind saving. But now you're you're completely disincentivizing saving. Beyond right now, what you have, a, a, a virtual zero interest rate environment still. Yes, I know interest rates have been ticking upward a bit. Now the, the Fed funds target is between 50 and 75 basis points, but still very low, you know, still virtual zero interest rates. I can still say, you know, zero interest rate environment. You've already disincentivized saving enough, and it's that way across the world. That's not just unique to the United States. That's It's the same way in Greece, too. Um, so n not only have you disincentivized saving in that way, but now you've further disincentivized it by imposing these arbitrary limits where in order to get where you get penalized tax-wise if you don't spend up to a certain amount of money. And so, of course, this is another way to get people out, people to spend wildly, and to boost up consumption numbers, which... There's nothing wrong with consumption. The, the whole reason why you save now is to be able to consume in the future. So I'm not saying consumption is bad, but it it is a bad thing when people are consuming only because of outside dictates like this, you know, where the market's being distorted and where people who otherwise would save and invest are instead going and consuming that money instead. And it sends the wrong signals to entrepreneurs and to businesses when these types of things are happening. So basically the point of it for Greece, and I guess I didn't really explain the ultimate goal, is to get people to use credit and debit cards more. They think that people people spend about this much anyways. So right now, rather than them going out and buying their food in cash, um, and probably a lot of people just like in India, and I don't blame them for not trusting the Greek banking system because it's been a mess recently and they remembered not too long ago not being able to get their money out of ATMs or get their money out of the out of the banks they're trying to force people to use debit cards and credit cards to keep their money in the system and so that, that that's the soft ban on cash that's getting people to instead of using cash for these everyday transactions because if you use cash for these transactions it doesn't apply to these thresholds so if you're making $40,000 or 40,000 euros a year and you spend 8,000 euros in cash on various items, then tough. You know, you're going to be paying and say you have zero euros 
that you've spent using credit or debit cards. You're going to be paying the 22% tax on that 8,000 euros that you did not pay, despite you having actually spent that amount in cash. So that's what they're trying to do here. And I think this could be, I know I say this all the time, the, the playbook. I've probably overused that term, but I think this is a, a way that you could ram something like this through. If you want to incentivize more consumption, they've already tried every trick in the book by keeping interest rates low. Um, you know, in the Bush years, sending out stimulus checks. They've they've tried a whole lot of different things to stimulate consumption. Uh, this could be another way to do it. And I would hope that it, it would not pass or not be accepted in the United States, but nothing would surprise me at this point. Uh, so I thought that was important to talk about. And I did want to talk briefly about Lena Dunham's comments. And I didn't really know much about Lena Dunham. I never watched her show or anything. I've heard about her over the last couple of years. I know she was one of the people that famously said she was going to move to Canada if Donald Trump was elected. And shocker, she didn't move to Canada. Um, and she said a lot of controversial things over the years. Uh, I know recently she it was with Odell Beckham Jr., the New York Giants wide receiver, and she complained that he gave her one look and and immediately decided she wasn't up to his standards, so he wasn't going to pursue, uh, pursue her sexually or wasn't going to give her the time of day. Uh, and she complained about that, like that's not the right of somebody to make that sort of determination, like somebody should be forced to interact with you as if you're a potential sexual partner, even if they're not attracted to you. You know, crazy things like this that she's done time and time again, and she probably had her most controversial moment yet recently and this is about a topic i really haven't covered much on this show and it's understandably one of the more controversial issues out there and i think it ultimately i don't want to say it doesn't matter but when i'm talking about you know the fiscal state of the country i don't think that the issue of abortion really matters that much to the vast majority of people and i'm probably going to get hate mail or, or you know people turning off the podcast right now because i say that and I know it, it does matter a lot to the people that want to have the ability to be able to get an abortion I understand that it matters a lot to those people but this is an issue to me that I don't want federal government involvement in I think it is an issue it should be left to the states let them make their own rules you know kind of the way that the U.S. was set up and let the people of those states determine and maybe you could even have different localities making different decisions on what is allowed in terms of abortions and what is not. And of course, when you say state right, states' rights, people think, oh, getting rid of Roe v. Wade and the, the federal right to abortion, that now the whole country is going to be making abortion illegal. I think the vast majority of the country would keep abortion legal pretty much the way it is now without Roe v. Wade in place. Um, and I think ultimately it, pro it should be legal, at least to a certain extent. Um, you know, maybe not maybe not late-term abortions. I don't really know the terms. I don't know enough about it to be able to talk about, you know, where I would draw the line necessarily. But I do think more on utilitarian grounds that people are going to be doing this anyways. And before abortion was legal in a lot of states, people were out, women were out getting illegal abortions and getting, you know, infected and getting hurt and, you know, a lot of different negative outcomes as a result. And at least with making it legal, it brings it into a controlled environment. Um, it brings it into a place where those complications 
won't happen. If somebody wants an abortion badly enough, they're going to get an abortion, regardless of, of whether or not it's legal. Uh, so it's kind of similar to, I guess, my ideas on prostitution being legal, um, drugs being legal. You know, these are kind of, these are e these are evils that are going to happen regardless. I say evils, you know, I don't think taking drugs is evil, but I think, I don't think it's something we should celebrate at the same time either. Um, just like prostitution, I don't think it's evil, but we also, it should be something we celebrate. It's just something that people are going to do and it's done much more safely and effectively when it can actually be under the constraints of, of a free market. I don't want to talk anymore really about abortion itself, just more about her comments and about what I think they mean. But she says that she wishes she had an abortion. She said this, I believe it's on her podcast. I read a, a transcript of it. Um, she was hosting Women of the Hour, which I'm not sure if that's her podcast or a podcast where women are rotating, talking. I've never heard of it before this. Um, and I didn't go listen to it. I just, like I said, read the transcript. She said a girl had asked her to share her experience with abortion. And then Lena said, quote, I sort of jumped. I haven't had an abortion, I told her. I wanted to make it really clear to her that as much as I was going out and fighting for other women's options, I myself have ne had never had an abortion. And then I realized that even I was carrying within myself stigma about this issue. Even I, the woman who cares as much as anybody about a woman's right to choose, felt that it was important that people know that I was unblemished in this department. Um, and then she said later on, quote, now I can say that I still haven't had an abortion, but I wish I had, which I think is a deplorable statement. I, I, I really do. You know, the people that make the decision to abort a child are making a very tough decision. If you have any sort of any threat of sympathy or, you know, if you, if you feel, I, I've got to imagine that's a very, very difficult decision to make and it's something that people do not make lightly and something that people do not wish upon other people but I think what Dunham is saying here it's almost part of the oppression Olympics I know it's a term that's that's thrown around a lot too but now having had an abortion is a sign of you know being part of the good fight in her mind you know the fight against the patriarchy that wants to take away women's bodily rights I think that's how she sees it. That's why she worded it that way. And that's how she sees the world. And people get certain points for being a certain level of oppressed, and it gives you a certain leeway to speak in a certain way. Um, and if you're a woman, that gives you some ability to speak out against things. But if you're white, it, gives, it, it limits you in some ways in her mind. Um, if you haven't had an abortion, it limits you in some ways. Um, and so that's why she's saying... She, wish, she wishes she had an abortion so that she could have that kind of badge of honor in the oppression Olympics. And I think she was rightfully condemned. She came out and apologized for I'm not going to read through her apology because it's basically exactly what you would expect. But I don't think that this was just an unfortunate wording. I think that what abortion represents to people that think this way, people that see the world this way, is a sort of badge of honor when it should be seen as a very tough decision, not something to applaud, I mean, not something to demonize either, in, in my opinion, but not something to be applauded, certainly. Somebody say, yes, you made a tough decision. I hope that you move on with your life and 
you know, that that ultimately ends up being the right decision for you. I think that's about as far as I would go. But for her to for her to applaud people who have gotten an abortion, or for her to, you know, want to be one of those people, I think it's just ridiculous. It's something. It's a it's a tough decision. I'm trying to think of a of a good corollary, but I'm having trouble thinking of something that really would I guess hammer that point home like a a comparable situation in another area of life. But I think that's how most reasonable people think about abortion and Lena Dunham obviously is not a reasonable person. Uh, so I'm glad people were outraged about this. She got a lot of venom directed at her online um, and I think the reasoning the reason why I think it's it's so bad it, it goes beyond abortion itself. And it goes into this whole idea of the oppression Olympics. And that's one of the reasons why, probably the biggest reason why I think this statement should be demonized. Um, so I think that's everything I wanted to cover for today. Like I said, at the beginning of this episode, I'd like to have another one out. I have a couple other topics I thought about maybe talking about today, but usually three is about the limit I can get to and still keep it under an hour, keep it you know at 45 minutes or less, ideally. Uh, so I want to thank you for listening and for sticking with me and looking forward to talking to you later in the week.